And we began in Isaiah 49 last week, and we're continuing on through Isaiah 49 this week. Uh, I intended to make it all the way from verses 1 through 13. That didn't happen. And so we're picking back up in verse 8, where we left off last week. Uh, but just so that we can all uh, together be on the same page, let's just begin reading our text this morning in verse 1, okay? So uh, Isaiah chapter 49, let's begin reading in verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you people from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, in the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver, and he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right hand is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. And then beginning here in verse 8 is where we'll spend our time this morning. Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he has pity on them, will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make my, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> and I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north, and these from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people, and will have compassion on his afflicted. That's a lot of text. There's a lot in there. Maybe that's why we didn't make it all the way through, right? As we're looking at this text together, I, I want to remind you that we're looking at the second of four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. So as you look at the book of Isaiah, there's this servant presented. We talked about this last week. There's a servant presented. We know that in, in one hand, the servant is the people of Israel, but that servant is blind and deaf and no good. 
But then the other servant seems to be a very good servant. The other servant seems to be one that can do nothing but achieve his goal and succeed. And so there are four times in the book of Isaiah where this good servant makes an appearance. And we're looking at a text where this is his second appearance. So in Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 13, we find this second servant song. And so last week, we talked about the connection between the the servant and Israel, but also the servant and Israel and Jesus Christ. So you remember the connection that we made. As God called his son out of Egypt, who did he call out of Egypt as well? Well, his other son. He called his servant out of Egypt, but he also called his servant out of Egypt, right? He called the people Israel out of Egyptian captivity, but then he also called his son, Jesus Christ, out of Egypt. Remember, they had to flee to Egypt. That's part of the Christmas story. You know that. They had to flee to Egypt. So God not only called his son Israel, he called his son, Jesus Christ, out of of Egypt. And so uh, not only that, as soon as they're called out of Egypt, both of them pass through waters. For the people of Israel, they pass through the separated waters of the Red Sea. And for Jesus, he passes through the waters of baptism. That's a great parallel. It's not by chance. And then after this, they are both tempted in the wilderness. Pretty amazing. I think there's an important connection to be made there, don't you? Jesus is the faithful son of God, the faithful Israel that Israel, the people, could never be. And there's a constant longing in the Old Testament as we hear about the people of Israel that they continue to fail. They continue to fail. They continue to not live up to this mark that God is calling them to. And I hope that when you read your Old Testament, and listen, I I sympathize and I understand that reading the Old Testament at times can be wearisome, a wearisome task because it's difficult. There's a lot of information there. I understand. I completely get that. But you understand that so much of what is in our Old Testament is pointing us to the great servant, Jesus Christ, who is to come. And also portraying something that we're going to see in particular this morning that I, that I want to draw out from the text for you today. Okay, so not only that, but before we move on to verse 8, just remember also that as Jesus was the light to the world, the light to the nations, that God was going to make his servant a light for the nations, right? That's what we read in our text. He's going to be a light to the nations. Was that true of Jesus? Did Jesus ever say, I am the light of the world? Absolutely, we know that. That's true. And by extension, when we have faith in Christ and we are found in him, what do we become? The lights of the world. And so Jesus was the light of the world, and so now we take on the task and the mission of the, of the servant to be a light to a dark world. Right? Okay, so we're moving on from that, then we're, we're starting in verse 8. And probably in your Bible, at least in the ESV, it actually starts a new heading. I kind of disagree with that heading, but it's... That, that separation there, well, we're going to take through verse 13, okay? Your chapter and verse divisions are not inspired, just so you know. So uh, anyway, we're, we're, uh, you might have a new heading, new section here, but it's continuing on, I promise. So uh, verse 8, it says, Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you, and I will keep you. And here's something very important to hear. And I will give you as a covenant, to the people. 
I will give you as a covenant to the people to establish land, to apportion desolate, her desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. And then uh, we start to have some other language there, but it flows from this idea about the great servant, the obedient servant, being given as a covenant to the people. What people? Who gets the great servant as a covenant? That's a good question. Not only that, why do we need another covenant? We already have a covenant with God. So they would say, correct? Why do we need a new covenant? What's wrong with this covenant? What is the covenant that has been established in Jesus? Right, because we understand that. We understand that this is talking about the servant who is Jesus Christ, who is given as a covenant for the people. It's very plain for us to go back and read that, right? More of a challenge for the people in Isaiah's day, right? So here's how I'd like to at least give some understanding to what's being said here about the servant being given as a covenant to the people. It's a very important concept for us to understand because this little baby that we celebrate being born on Christmas Day was born for a reason, and it wasn't for the celebration of Christmas. He was born to be given as a covenant to the people. So what, what makes this so special? What makes this so important? <coughs> Excuse me. Let's begin by looking at Genesis 12. So we're, we're coming back here, okay? You gave me more opportunity to dig in a little deeper because you let me go so long last week. So, so we're, we're going to dig in a little bit and, and look at this idea Genesis 12. So you probably have one of these little fancy bookmarks, right, in your Bible. Some of you have multiple. Do you ever, I mean, you can use those and put it where we are and then flip to the other place and then use that. They actually have a purpose. It's amazing. So use them. All these little tools in our Bible are there on purpose, you know. There's maps in the back. Do you know? Those maps are helpful. Anyway, Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1. Here is God's covenant with Abram at the time who would become Abraham. And you know the name Abraham. So this is Abram. Don't get it confused. This is certainly the same guy as Abraham. His name has changed here in just a little while. But God seemingly just out of nowhere approaches this man named Abram and says to him, Genesis 12 beginning in verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What if God came to you and said all these great and wonderful things to you. And you would say, I'm not sure exactly what we would say. Uh, honestly, uh, that's, that's a little much. Uh, but maybe one of the things that we would say in response is, what do I need to do then? So that you will bless me. So that this will be true. Tell me, what is my end? 
That's what you're saying you're going to do. Now, how can I be sure that you're going to do that? Where can I not fail? Please tell me. What is the answer here? There is nothing. There is nothing. It is not said, I will bless you, Abram, and I will do all these great things that we just read in these three verses. If you, it's not there. You can look. You can look through the pages of the text. You're not going to find it. It's not conditional. God said, I am going to bless you. This is going to be the case. And I'm going to see it through. No conditions. Does that sound like a great uh, covenant to enter into with God? So you're telling me that you're going to do this regardless of, of anything that I do or that happens? I'm, I'm just, was Abraham perfect? Huh? No. So was it based upon him being a good and righteous, perfect man that God finally found someone that was good enough to enter into a covenant with? Or is it simply that God saw and said, you, it's not because you're the biggest, it's not because you're the best, it's not because of anything, it's because I said you. That's why. It's amazing, isn't it? What a great blessing from God already to be in the eyes of God and for him to say, my blessing is coming upon you. I want you to keep this in mind because the way that God enters into covenant with humanity is not always this way. This was the case with Abram. Not the case, as we will see here in just a moment. But before we get to that, turn just a couple of chapters over to Genesis 15, and I want to read a text here for you uh, This about the idea of covenant. <coughs> so when a covenant arrangement is entered into, there is normally a sign, and this is so easy for us to understand because, believe it or not, this is still one of the things that we do today. There's a lot of things in, in, uh, in the scriptures that are so far removed from us, it's, it's hard to transport ourselves back and really understand what's going on there, right? But to say that there is a symbol of a covenant, we actually get that because many of us are wearing it, Right? You entered into a covenant agreement with someone and you gave a symbol of that covenant. So we understand the idea of a covenant being accompanied by a symbol, yes? Okay. Uh, Genesis 15. I have... <laughs> uh, I'll tell you in a second. Genesis 15, beginning in verse 1. <coughs> After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir to my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And, become the wor and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, but your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he said, look toward heaven, number the stars. You know this, right? He said, look toward heaven, number the stars, and if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Very important. 
And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you to this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And here's what God says. Bring me a heifer, three years old, female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. And he brought them all and he cut them and he cut them in half and he laid them each half over against the other. Uh, right, an odd situation. You can admit that. For us, that's very odd that God says, I, I'm going to show you, Abram, uh, that I mean business. I'm going to give you a sign of our covenant together. There's something amazing about to happen here. He says, I'm going to give you a sign of our covenant. So it, we continue on. He says, but he didn't cut the birds in half. Uh, when the birds of prey came down, the carcasses, Ab- Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain, your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Did that happen? Did that come to pass? But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. But as for you, you shall go into your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Okay, so that's an explanation of the promises. So here's back to why the animals were all cut in half. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. That's strange, right? A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the cut pieces of the animals. And God said, and so this is why I'm Uh, this is why I'm doing this, because I want to give you a sign that these things will come to pass. And so here is my sign. God is giving them, so the, the, as you look and you understand the imagery of what's going on with God and how he appears to the people, just think about God on the mountain and the smoke and the fire, and uh, this is commonly how God manifests himself, right? And so when we see smoke and fire, it's a manifestation of God himself. And so a manifestation of God singularly passes between the two cut pieces of these animals and he says there you go i told you i was going to show you and that's how he did it because the custom was when you enter into a a covenant with anyone these covenants were entered into from person to person and what you do is you cut animals in half and the two parties would walk through the cut uh, animals as to symbolize if we break our agreements what happened to these animals will happen to me. The interesting thing, the amazing thing that happens here is God enters in alone. There is no part that Abram plays. Do you see it? God took this on himself. I will do it. You're not involved. And that is how I know that this will happen. Because it's me. I'm doing it. I'm bearing the responsibility, and you better believe I'm going to fulfill all that I've said. That's amazing. That's amazing how God does this. What I was thinking of that was funny is that I was at a wedding one time, and uh, 
there was a guy there who enjoyed biblical history, and he uh, sent his groomsmen to the uh, grocery store before the service, before the ceremony, and bought a bunch of meat. And he he uh, had them all stand with the meat. I, this is strange. It's funny. I mean, I. <laughs> People who didn't know the imagery were like, what is going on here? But he had them all stand there, and he walked down the aisle in the meat, and he walked on either side. He said, but he was saying to his wife in his, you know, weird way, if I don't keep this arrangement between us, so let it be to me that happened to these animals. That's special when you think about it that way. <laughs> I did not do that at my wedding. <laughs> so this is one type of covenant that God enters into with Abraham. And it's miraculous, isn't it? It's special, isn't it? But there's another way that God enters into a covenant that we all know well, a different covenant, a covenant with Moses. And the reason that we're discussing these is because God is giving the servant as a covenant. And so we're asking, so then what type of covenant is God entering into with the servant. What, what type of covenant is it? So there's a di another type of covenant that is the Mosaic covenant and is unlike the covenant with Abraham. And so I'll show you this uh, because we're more familiar, I think, with the Mosaic covenant. So I'm just going to give you two verses uh, that kind of give us a well-rounded idea of this covenant. <coughs> Excuse me, having a little trouble catching my breath. All right, Deuteronomy 28, 9. It says, The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself, as he has sworn to you. Now, that sounds good so far, doesn't it? But then he says, If you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. Now, that is unlike the covenant with Abraham, isn't it? Because he said, I will do this if you do this. Right? Do you see the difference? Okay, Deuteronomy 28, 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commands and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses will come upon you and they'll overtake you. So these are, there are blessings and curses that come, come to the people through the covenant with Moses. But I want you to see that it is fundamentally different than the covenant that God entered into with Abraham. One, if we want to use some technical terminology here, one with Abraham is a unilateral covenant. Single track, right? It only goes one direction. A unilateral covenant with Abraham. Now with Moses, he enters into a bilateral covenant, meaning two directions. Both directions need to be fulfilled in order for the covenant to remain in force, right? As we've been reading about the people of Israel, their history... Have they lived up to their end of this covenant arrangement? What do you think? They've been really, really faithful people. They've done every, they've been very, very careful. They've not served any other gods. Absolutely not. That's not been the case. So that means what? That uh, they're plundered and destroyed and led into captivity, and that's what we're reading about, isn't it? Isn't that what? Isn't that the the situation surrounding Isaiah, the Assyrian captivity of the northern, uh, the northern people, and then the northern tribe, and then the southern 
uh, tribe of, of Israel is Judah. And now they are being led into Babylonian captivity. Oh, why? Why is this all happening to us? Because God said that it would, because you didn't live up to your end of our covenant arrangement. Now, has God forgotten the covenant that he made with Abraham? Did the disobedience of Israel nullify a covenant that was established? Absolutely not. It can't. Could anything undo it? No, there were no stipulations. There was no condition. Do you, under, you understand what we're saying here? And so although the people, have, and we're seeing disobedience, we're seeing them be punished, all this is very true, but God has not forgotten his promises. He has not forgotten his promises. We have a God who does not forget his promises, and he always, always fulfills his end. Always. And he does it perfectly. So what about this new covenant? That God is going to take this servant and he's going to give him as a covenant to the people. So we're very curious. Tell me, what kind of covenant is this? Is it a covenant that we are going to have to work to keep ourselves in the covenant and be very, very careful that if we mess up, we'll be outside the covenant agreement and curses will come upon us? Or has God done something to ensure salvation? Unless a third uh, system has come about, which logically, what other parties are involved, right? Uh, there is God alone, or there is God and the one being saved. Wh what other parties are there? Okay, so we have two options. Either God has a unilateral covenant in the new covenant, or he has a bilateral covenant. And we need to understand what type of covenant that is so that we have a proper understanding of what God is accomplishing through the servant that's been promised in Isaiah, yes? <coughs> All right, so... Uh, Is it true with you as well? I told my wife this, and maybe I was just kind of delirious from my fever. But I told my wife, when I'm sick, it feels like my brain is in jail. Does anybody know what I mean by that? Or am I, am I literally insane? I could just be insane. Okay, well, I'll take it. I mean, I probably <laughs> am insane. But anyway, my brain's working a little slow. Here we go. Uh, we have Isaiah 49.8 quoted, cited in our New Testament, giving us some help and understanding. And so that's, I, I told you last week that Isaiah 49 is quoted three times in our New Testament. Three times, that's pretty significant. Uh, but not the same place every time, three different places. Uh, so that's good. So Isaiah 49.8, the first part of it is quoted in 2 Corinthians 5. And so... We're going to look there. So God has a plan to give this obedient servant as a covenant for the people. That's great news. So there's a new covenant coming. And the question for the people is, so when is it coming? And so the text says, when? Well, there's a favorable time coming, a day of salvation coming. Do you see that in the text? There's a favorable time is coming. And in that favorable time, and on that day of salvation... 
he will be given as a covenant for the people. That's great. When is that time? When is that day? 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though once we regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him less no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ had reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that is. Christ, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and trusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So this is what we talked about last week, right? So you got to think about the text from last week about being a light to the nations. We understand that by extension, we also become a light to the nations. And so this all makes sense. God making his appeal, how? Through us. Do you see it? How is God making his appeal? Through us. So we implore you on, the beha- on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you to receive the gra- to not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says... In a favorable time, I listened to you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. And he says, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So here we have Paul looking back on this text from Isaiah 49. And he's saying that day of salvation, that favorable time is here and is now in Jesus Christ. And so the call is to you to be reconciled to your God because he has had favor on us. Be reconciled to God. How? Well, we know the only way to have reconciliation with God, it's the, very, it's the, it's the reason our church was named Fellowship Renewed Church is because the gospel is in there. Fellowship Renewed, how do you have fellowship with God? You have fellowship with God only through faith in Jesus Christ. You do not have fellowship with God outside of faith in Jesus Christ. This is reconciliation. We are reconciled to God through Christ. So the servant is Jesus Christ, and he's established as a covenant for the people, and we find that covenant being uh, explained by Paul, and he's saying it's here, it's now, he's come. He's established this covenant, and... uh, here a few years ago, and I don't know how, how many years ago it was, but we walked through the whole book of Hebrews together, and uh, there's some very technical things in the book of Hebrews, but it's very, very good and enlightening for us. In particular, chapter 8 draws my attention, reason being it talks about Christ being established as a covenant for the people as it relates to the covenant that God had previously established with the people. I'm going to jump down here a little bit, Uh, but it says, this is in Hebrews 8, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old covenant because the the covenant that he mediates is better, and it's been enacted on better promises. If that first covenant had been faultless, there would be no occasion to look for a second. Would we agree with that? If the covenants established were good in themselves, why ever would we need another one established? You considered that? Why do we need another covenant 
Why not just keep the old one? Because something different's happening here. We saw what it was, and if you're, if you're, if you're reading here, you're going to realize the covenant he's talking about is that covenant established with Moses. And he's saying that covenant has been given over to the covenant of Christ. If that one was perfect, we would have no reason to look for another. And yet here it is. Here is the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And it's enacted how? On better promises. Better promises. It says, I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. This is him quoting from Jeremiah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So that's the covenant with Moses. They did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. So that's taking the people of God who had entered into covenant with him and saying, I I entered into covenant with them, but they did not continue in my covenant. And so I, I so I showed no concern for them. Do we see that playing out in the book of Isaiah? I I hope you do. But you scratch your head a little bit because you say, you're showing no concern for them. Then why are you talking to them? Why do you say, comfort, comfort my people? Why do you give them hope? It's interesting, isn't it? Because God knew what was coming. And he promised them that a covenant was coming where they couldn't fail. You can't can't fail. It's not going to be up to you to keep the rules and the laws and to earn a righteous standing with me. It's not how it's going to work. I am going to fulfill all righteousness for you. And it's an amazing covenant that he created uh, with us. So go back with me to Isaiah 49. And yes, I recognize we have not gotten very far in the text. I see it too. I'm not the only one that sees it. Some of this background to understanding, just in my opinion, it helps us so much better to understand what's actually being said here. I will give him as a covenant for you, a covenant. Okay, well, what significance is that? I, I think we're maybe we're starting to understand. This is a big deal that God's about to do this. But in Isaiah 49, so he says there's, there's, a, there's a day coming, and this one coming says to the prisoners, come out, those who are in darkness appear. Well, we've already talked about that, that exact language before, right? So we'll move on to verse 10. They shall not hunger or thirst, and neither shall scorching wind nor sun strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water he will guide them. So here we have again, and it's, it's much more brief, so go with me there, but this passage again is quoted in our New Testament. Verse 10 is also quoted in our New Testament. So there's a lot coming to life here because there's so much here. So we understand that this servant is coming. He's going to be a light for the nations. He's going to be given as a covenant for the people. And we understand that this is Jesus Christ who has come, given as a covenant for the people. He is the light of the world. We are now the lights of the world by faith in him. So how does this come into play? They shall no longer hunger or thirst, neither shall scorching wind strike them, 
for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by strings, springs of water he will guide them. Um, we might think, uh, they shall not hunger or thirst. Are you hungry? You thirsty? And what you need desperately in a Savior is that he would just give you some food and drink already? So maybe we ought to think about this on possibly different terms. What's being said? So this is quoted in the book of Revelation. And it's quoted in Revelation chapter 7, verse 16. So I want to read it for you because it's very interesting what happens because as I told you last week, this concept of progressive revelation where we have an, an, a prophecy given to us in Isaiah 49, and then when you get to Revelation 7, it actually it becomes a lot more clear what's actually being said, and, uh, and a figure is actually identified who is doing the comforting. So Revelation 7, verse 16, it says, They shall hunger no more, thirst, and not thirst anymore. This is exact quotation here. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. So that's all direct quotation, right? But look at what we have next, because this is not. It says, for, reason being, the reason being that none of this is going to happen anymore is this. The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. That's why. Because the lamb is going to be their shepherd. That's why none of this is going to happen to them, because they have someone caring for them. They have someone watching over them. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He who has pity on them, in Isaiah 49, it says, For he who has pity on them will lead them. And who is that? In Revelation 7, it says it's Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Did you see it? Jesus Christ is the one who has pity and leads by springs of water and guides them. The Lamb is the servant of God, and he is the eternal comfort of the people of God. We have two more verses, and so I'd like to cover them with you, okay? promise not to hold you captive for too long, but I... I'd like to finish this out uh, this morning. I feel like I'm operating in slow motion here a little bit this morning. But uh, let's, let's finish the text out, okay? Verses 11 through 13 says, I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. And behold, these shall come from afar. And behold, these shall come from the north, and those from the west, and those from the land of Syene. That's the south. So get this picture right here. I will make all my mountains a road. Can you pass over a mountain very easily? You say, you're looking, there's a road and there's a mountain. Which one are you picking? So he's saying, all my mountains I'm going to turn into roads. And so the thing that used to be I can't get there is now easy access. You see that imagery? And so I'm going to make all the mountains a road and all my highways shall be raised up. It's, it, they're all going to come in all directions. And it's going to say, so these shall come from afar. Behold, these from the north and from the west and from the south, which is where Syene is. And so he's saying, it, it, behold, people from everywhere are coming. No, what's stopping them? This is good news. This is very, very good news that people from everywhere are coming. And so what does it say to do in response? Sing for joy, 
O heavens, and exult, O earth, and break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. What God promised to do and what the Israelites truly are longing for, comfort, and it's not a momentary fleeting thing, but a true comfort God established by means of Jesus Christ making him a covenant for the people but here's what's happening. Who's walking down the road? Who is it that's coming? Who is it that's being comforted? Who are the afflicted? I want you to notice the Lord has comforted who? All people from everywhere, from every land, from every corner of the earth. It's not what it says. Who did he comfort? His people. And he will have compassion on who? His afflicted. Do you see that? Who does God comfort? His people. Who does God have compassion on? His afflicted. Who are they? God is gathering. God is gathering people. God is bringing in the people unto salvation. He has established a covenant with them. We saw what a covenant is like when it's dependent on the people. Did we not? So did God say, I'm going to create this new thing. I'm going to create this new covenant with my promised servant. And he is going to establish this covenant with the people. And yet again, it's going to be partly contingent on me, partly contingent on you, so I hope you can live up to your end of the bargain. That would be sad if that's the best God's got. It'd be very sad. Would that result in the people joyously celebrating and singing, look at what God has done. Or would they say, well, we, you know, we kind of already saw how that plays out. I don't know if I have it in me. In fact, I know that I do not have it in me. So how does one get into this covenant? How does one become one of God's afflicted? How does this work? Now, there are several texts here that I would very much like to take you to, but I'm going to choose which one I'm going to take you to. Uh, <laughs> these are good. We'll continue covering this concept, by the way. You know, the idea of, of coming to an understanding of these things, and uh, I can't remember who I was talking to just the other day, but you, you have to think about all this stuff in terms of a marathon and not a sprint. We're not going to walk through the Bible and cover every single concept uh, in systematic theology, that we're not reading from a systematic theology textbook here. We're reading from Scripture. And so the things that are covered here, we should attempt to explain the best that we can. Right? But what we know is that there's more text coming to further explain. Okay? So if things are left lingering, it's okay. Well, you're coming back, aren't you? I mean, we're going through Isaiah together, aren't we? So we'll get there. And if you get called home first, it, 
you're good to go anyway. So we'll get there. We'll talk about these things together. How did Jesus talk about the ingathering of his sheep? Because that's what Jesus calls those who are comforted. He's the shepherd, right? He actually, he's, he's, he's the shepherd, but he's also, interestingly enough, the lamb, <laughs> right? Uh, it's interesting, but he is both, that is true. But Jesus is the shepherd, and so what does he have? His sheep, and what does he do with them? He leads them by water, he comforts them, he feeds them, right? Okay, so I want to be one of those, right? Do you want to be one of those? I, I am one of those. Uh, how does that work? How does one become a sheep of God? John 6, beginning in verse 35, is where I'll, I'll read, and I don't intend to spend too much time here, so I want the text to speak much for itself. I want you to hear about the way that Jesus says that the sheep are gathered from here and there and from the north and from the south and from the east, okay? I want you to hear about how this is happening and how Jesus himself talks about it. John 6, beginning in verse 35, Jesus said to them, <clears throat> I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, comes to me, shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's good. We like that. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you don't believe. But here's what Jesus says. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Did you hear that? There's something specific being said there. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Will Jesus be faithful to that promise? For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's great. That's about being part of that covenant. So the Jews grumbled, though, and we always know that that's not good when grumbling comes in. But the reason they grumbled is because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, uh, is this not Jesus, son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? And now he says he's from heaven. Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day, and it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, and he who has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And if you follow that story, it soon comes to be that Many turn and walk away from Jesus at that point. And the reason for that is because they did not like what Jesus just said. Jesus turns to his disciples and then says to them, Do you want to leave also because of what I just said? And what is their reply? Where, where can we go? There is nowhere else for us to go. That is the sound of a sheep who has been comforted by a great shepherd, and they know where they need to be. We 
we experience the comfort of salvation today, yes, true, but still not in full. You understand that? When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, do we still experience in part these afflictions, these disappointments, these upsets, these trials through life? You know that we do. But do you know what you have? If you have had faith in Christ, if you believe, if you believe that he truly is the Son of God, if you have faith, if you repent of your sins, you trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you understand that the best is yet to come for you. But you also understand that no matter what happens to you, that you have someone who cares to comfort your soul. Do you know that? We have someone who actually cares for our soul. It is this, it is this idea, I'll finish with that. I know I've been going on here. I'll finish with that. I wanted to say a lot more right there, but I'll spare you. It is God who saves. It is God who comforts. It is God who is worthy of our praise, yes? It is God who saves. It is God who comforts. It is God who's worthy of praise. Because in the end of this covenant, do we get to heaven and say, whew, that was hard. And aren't you glad, God, that I did everything I needed to do to get here? I did it. Are you proud of me? We would be maybe shocked to hear then from God, you know, that I'm the one who got you here despite who you are? This is the kind of agreement that we have with God by faith in Christ. He has saved. He has redeemed. He has done the work. There is comfort in that. But what if we mess up? If you have truly had faith in Christ, there is nothing that can unsave you from the grips of your Savior. That's exciting for us. It's comforting for us. What about when I have times of lack of faith or I, didn't, I wasn't quite obedient as I should have been? Okay. You should repent of that. Then you should rejoice that you have forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ. And move on. Think about things that are good. Think about things that are beautiful. Think about things that are true, worthy of praise. Right? We live in a culture who wants to look at all the garbage and to point you toward looking at all the garbage and the weaknesses and the disappointments and the failures and the frustrations and the hurts. And it wants you to mask them. We don't need to mask them. We have someone who will comfort our heart in the midst of those very hard things. He is a shepherd. He's a shepherd of our souls. He is the good and faithful servant who was given to us. He is here. When is the day of salvation? It's now. When is the favorable time that God will have compassion on his people? It's today. God is now speaking to the world through us. We are shining as lights in a dark world. If you have not been reconciled to God by faith in Jesus Christ, today is the day. And now is the time. If you believe. All these promises are yours. And it's amazing. And it's worthy of praise. It's worthy of singing, isn't it? That should be our response, singing to a great God who has done these great things for us. Let's all pray together.